Hey everyone, before we start, there are two things you can do to support Between Us. Go to patreon.com slash between us and become a supporter. Or go to the iTunes store and buy Between Us, a psychotherapy podcast, original soundtrack. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show. Are you wounded? Repeat, are you wounded? Are you bailing out? What's your name? June. Yes, June, I'm bailing out. I'm bailing out, but there's a catch. I've got no parachute. Hello, Peter, do not understand. Hello, hello, Peter, can you hear me? Hello, June. Don't be afraid. It's quite simple. We've had it, and I'd rather jump than fry. After the first thousand feet, what's the difference? I shan't know anything anyway. I say, I hope I haven't frightened you. No, I'm not frightened. Good girl. This idea of the pluperfect errand. Pluperfect is an English tense that means I might have, I would have. I... So it's as though it's in the past, but it's the conditional past. You have to do this, but you can't, because it's actually the time to have done it has gone. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. Are you haunted by ghosts? Are there people looming over your experience? Are they friendly? Are they torturous? What do you say to them? I remember being a little boy and growing up in the cradle between Lookout Mountain and Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Driving with my father late at night, perhaps on the way back from a sporting event. And the ghost stories he used to tell me. There was a soldier with green eyes who died trying to get back to his wife during the Civil War. Late at night, in the battlefields of Lookout Mountain and Chickamauga, you could sometimes see a pair of green eyes floating through the trees. I was always quick to say, those are lightning bugs. My mom had moved to the south from Chicago. A Jewish girl who grew up with family friends who had tattoos on their arms from the concentration camps. It all seemed so very distant from me in time, place, and in experience. I never really felt like a Jew or a southerner, but something in between. But the in-betweenness is a haunting in its own way. The loss of a home, a place to rest, an identity. It's a whisper for me, others are haunted by screams. But it's a whisper that looms when I think about our topic today. Dr. Adrian Harris is a profoundly important person in the world of modern psychoanalysis. As a feminist advocate, innovator, and historian of the field. She is a psychoanalyst in New York and is faculty of the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. And perhaps most important for our discussion today, she takes part in a consultation group in New York that has led to the writing of two books, Ghosts in the Consulting Room and its companion, Demons in the Consulting Room. Her co-editors on these books 
are Dr. Susan Klebanoff and Dr. Marjorie Kalb, and they were kind enough to join me for a discussion of the question, how does a ghost become an ancestor? Dr. Adrian Harris, thanks for talking with us on the show. Thank you. So the book is really interesting. First of all, tell me about the evolution of this book and where how it came about. It kind of came about without really any of us, uh, us being me as a teacher and five or six students who'd come to do a study group with me. None of us really had this in mind. So I just picked a paper that I thought might bring people together to think about. And it was a, a paper that was published in 2005, and it won a prize at the, Ameri- the International Psychoanalytic Association, a prize for the best writing in a particular year on uh, topics about the Holocaust and genocide. And it's a paper called When the Third is Dead, and the word third means something kind of outside a dyad where a doctor and patient are talking to each other, but the third is more the social realm. And what what the author of this paper, Sam Gerson, was talking about was what happens when there has been a catastrophe and it's not registered in the culture. So we could think about race and uh, slavery as a, a kind of ongoing catastrophe that gets that is forgotten and remembered and disappears from our consciousness and then reappears. And what Sam was doing was looking at the people who had lived through the Holocaust, lived through the Shoah, and who then really were trying to write about it, were trying to understand it, were trying to make sure that other people understood, and sometimes found that there was a kind of amnesia in in various cultures. And sometimes it was in Israel, sometimes it was in North America, where people just couldn't bear to think. And so his paper was about what happens when trauma gets lost. And something that has affected millions of people kind of isn't, nobody's, nobody's naming the question, nobody's talking about it. So this was just to get us thinking about how do you sit in a room with a patient and Pay attention to what they can't speak about, whether it's personal or political or social. So that was just the beginning. And for a reason that I don't think we actually fully understand, somehow all the cases kept coming up and there would be some strange kind of ghostly figures in somebody's history, not really talked about, but kind of important. And so we began to think about ghosts and to use that word, and that word is not like a technical word in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, but it somehow seemed right. So it just literally came out of the process of making a group and reading this paper, and then people began to talk about cases in which the patient seemed burdened by 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 haunted in, in just very different, many differences among the people we were talking about, but but haunted. But there were there were things that, that, that were they didn't seem exactly inside somebody and they didn't seem exactly outside. They seemed more burdens that people carried, sometimes children, sometimes grown up. 
And these burdens were of history that was sort of had been erased. And so it so it just came to us slowly that this was somehow an important thing to be thinking about as a as a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst. Dr. Marjorie Cobb is Dr. Harris's co-editor and co-faculty and a psychoanalyst in New York. Here she is. Um, why the word ghost? Yes. Well, we started with ghosts and we expanded to demons. I should first just say that. And I think ghosts really conveys at a very visceral level something spooky, something uncanny, something spectral that we want to convey. It, you know, it has poetic resonance, but also it has a very strong theoretical, developmental, and an integrative explanation of human haunting and the therapeutic potential that lies in that. While we recognize that their ideas about ghosts in our personal lives and in our clinical interactions as well as in the larger world, we've been drawn into new territory. You know, what are ghosts and demons really? How do we respond to their hauntings that are sometimes so terrifying? And, and what does it really mean to bury them or, as Lowell said, transform them into ancestors? And to what extent is it possible or even desirable to do so? And how do we go about that in therapy? Mm. And it's so important because on, on this very basic human level, I think we're all haunted to some degree. In 2011, Adrian Harris was in Madrid with her husband, Robert Sklar, a film historian. They were discussing his upcoming book, A History of Post-War Cinema, from 1945 to 1960. He told her of a British film that Americans call Stairway to Heaven, about a fighter pilot who falls in love with a radio operator, only to crash and find himself in the afterlife, and a struggle to get back to Earth and reunite with his new love. While on the trip to Madrid, Bob Sklar took a fall while riding his bike and passed away. In a meditation on the surrealness of that moment and the supernatural desires of the film, Adrian writes, If I am omnipotent, I can restart time, turn it back, undo death. But if I am omnipotent, then I must be responsible for whatever happens. So omnipotent freezes us in a stance of guilt, a stance that is painful but necessary. Yet, how curious that guilt seems preferable to the acceptance entailed in mourning. Loss must be assimilated over and over. One fights very fiercely the never that accompanies the experience of death and the helplessness in that experience. Here's Adrian. There's something about the language of ghosts that that speaks to like the the folk aspect. Yeah, yeah. Was there a discussion about that word in comparison to other words, and what did that discussion entail? Did it push up against any of any need to feel technical or academic? It actually didn't. The thing that did that that actually happened is that we began to tr- think about distinctions between ghosts and demons. And I, I would say that we've, we've done study groups, we've done co- little mini-conferences, 
at the New School and at NYU about this topic. And we have never run into a strong feeling of, oh, you should be talking a more technical language. I think people feel very immediately drawn towards this way of thinking and that the distinctions that we made were not between kind of clinical psychiatric language and words like ghost, but more like what kind of ghosts are we talking about and what's the difference between a ghost and a demon and what about the ghost? You know, some of the ghosts are, are creatures that we seem to want to protect. Some of them are things we're afraid of. Sometimes we feel in danger from demonic forces in our characters or in our history. So it actually quite quickly became a very useful language world and one where we we got a lot of mileage, I think, talking to each other, talking to students, writing about it. But, but this, this is something to think about, the notion in which we are haunted and we're haunted in very different ways. There are burdens that people feel of figures that they are supposed to take care of. Even if these figures have died, then it doesn't re- release you from the task of, of caretaking. I don't think we felt somehow that there was a big pushback about having used these words. Can I ask you about this idea of the third? I'm, I'm so used to talking about it in an in intersubjective kind of relational dynamic context where the third is kind of what's happening between two people. The third comes out of the interaction of the two people and something more is made. And that is the usual. That's the way the analyst Tom Ogden has initially talked about it and and Jessica Benjamin also. But it started to morph into something different in which the third became the larger context not just something that emerged from two people's interaction. It definitely has that. Something more happens in the twosome and and that it creates a, a new kind of experience. But I think the other the other way the third came to be positioned was that a therapist and a patient are talking, but they are also existing within a social and political experience and order. And that that's really, that's another kind of third. Jessica Benjamin sometimes talks about the moral third. That is, how do ethics as an, uh, something outside of dyad, a clinical dyad, come to be part of? So, when Jessica was thinking about the, the moral third, she was thinking about kind of um, ethics and moral values that come in and sort of compel us or that we have to think about, like political crimes were. Here's Marjorie again. Well, I, I think Sam was really talking about the vicissitudes of witnessing, you know, and, and he was interested in what emerges when when registration of pain is just simply beyond the capacity of an individual or a group to cope, you know, and when these present absences, as he calls them, and that's a term that has been used by others as well. And, and they are 
these absences that are infinitely, deeply, and powerfully felt emotionally or unconsciously, whether in the patient or the analyst or the interaction, and that's where the third is. But though they are felt, they are under-processed, under-felt. My language that I use is under-internalization. They're resisted because they're so painful. And then there's this gap in a, in a, a verbal, coherent narrative, you know, which is a life story that each of us narrates about ourselves. So that story then has sentences or chapters that we once metaphorically read but cannot now recall. And the print is just to go along with that metaphor. The, the print, if we can call it that, is too vague to make out the words. So we can't understand or move on in the story in our life without understanding and integrating emotionally what's missing. And we use the third to do that. Adrian Harris again. In the Demons book, there is a chapter by an African-American therapist, psychoanalyst, named Jan Gump. And she wrote something that she calls The Ghosts of Slavery. Mm. And she really wrote about the violence that befell enslaved persons in the 19th century as slavery is slowly made illegal and stopped. But the continuation of violence intergenerationally, she looked at people like Frederick Douglass and his biography, and then she looked at her, at her in her own practice at the the ways in which violence could permeate African-American families. And she saw it as a kind of way in which slavery continued to kind of invade um, individuals' lives intergenerationally. So there were, in the Demons book, people writing about culture more and, and trying to look at the third as the place where culture and history, politics, the state, all have an effect on a treatment or on an individual. The third can come to represent anything that is not said, that that which is unsaid that is hanging over the treatment. It may be something that has a, a place. It is, I mean, it, it does include things that are about which People are not talking, so it absolutely does have that sense of something that is off-limits, can't be spoken of. But it also includes things that we sort of almost sometimes take for granted and don't really realize how powerful they are in our psyche. You know, we have theories of clinical work and theories of development where everything is somehow situated in the family. But, but I think the third would include forces that gender us and impose on our sexuality and, you know, what's the experience of race. So I think it is both, it can be things that are palpable, that are in the social world, and it can be things that are, uh, and have been erased, but, but nonetheless affect us very powerfully. If you could say a little more about the difference between ghosts and demons. Some of the kind of cases that came up, some of the ways people talked about clinical work, that some of the ghosts tended to be really powerful figures in somebody's history, sometimes even one or even two generations, but sometimes just one generation, where a lot of suffering had befallen the person. 
So that there was this kind of, it, it's sort of very, sometimes a little hard to talk about because we're not talking about something that's realistic, but only that, that, that somehow the, the patient, the person, felt so responsible for the suffering of these other people that they were haunted by them, but the task was somehow to take care of them. So I think in ghosts, there are people that frighten us. There, there are events that frighten us. And there are people that are we are haunted by whom we feel are our responsibility. And so we, we looked at ghosts as that, and we looked at other kinds of figures that we are very, can be very dominated by, but who are very dangerous. Mm. And sometimes we want to take care of them, even if they're dangerous, but where there is a very hostile battle, and where there is danger, and this is both a dangerous part of the self and a dangerous part of one's history. I mean... I think in the ghost of slavery, a lot of what was being remembered was tremendous violence against black individuals. You could think of lynching as mm-hmm. essentially a history of demonic forces violence. So that was sort of just, I think, broadly the, the difference. There is often in a person's history something that they understand that their birth and the reason they were conceived had something to do with a project, a loss, that had happened perhaps to the parents, perhaps to the grandparents. And in in the sort of technical language, it's sort of something one calls a replacement child. So a child is conceived in order to be a replacement for something that is lost. It could be mm. in the previous generation or... Or maybe uh, maybe the parents had a had a baby that died or was ill or something happened. But what's what's sort of powerful about that is that in a sense that child comes with an errand. The child isn't just born. The child is born in order to help people recover from a loss. Well, in a hundred years ago, it was more often where the child would even receive the name of the dead older sibling. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. and there. But then even more, one would be saddled with the demand to replace the one that was lost. Mm-hmm. But in a certain way, once the child arrives, they are so clearly not that child that they become, in a sense, burdened by a ghost that they they can't they can't find themselves because the ghost is so powerful. And it's not, sometimes in the fact when it's tasked with something that you never really learn, what was I supposed to do, why was I supposed to do it? And so it makes it ghostly and, and you know, some of the ghosts are very clear to us. Sometimes our ghosts are kind of very opaque and unclear. That makes me think of your final contribution writing in the ghost book, your very moving chapter on your husband and and talk about clarity. I mean, you have, it seems like you have an intense clarity and remembrance for each of those moments. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was was so eerie that he and I had had this conversation and Mm. he'd had this film in mind to think about around ghosts 
and around the ghosts of, of a soldier, uh, you know, who survives the Second World War and yet is haunted and thinks he should be dead. And so it, it was very, you know, it was sort of very eerie to have had that experience just as our group was going to give a panel on ghosts. Mm-hmm. And, but it was, it was, I think it was for me a way of um, working on my own grief. I mean, I think that's another part of what, what our group is, is interested in is how do you, how do you transform a ghost into either an object of mourning or, um, there's a wonderful phrase that comes from Hans Lowald, uh, how do you turn a ghost into an ancestor? And mm. how do you, how do you mourn? How do you take on uh, a, a loss and accept it? Um, because I, I think the other thing that the distinction is the distinction Freud made between melancholy and mourning. And that in mourning, you're tasked to accept the finality of death. And in the film that I wrote about, and in certainly my working on, you know, processing the, the death of my husband, there, there was, you know, how do I accept the reality? How do I? Mm. And so it was interesting to work on the film, which is a film in which death is kind of defeated. It has this strange, magical place. It looks like it's just going to be a film about the Second World War, and all of a sudden it's like we're in heaven and there are trials, and, you know, there's mm-hmm. a whole magical Hollywood thing that happens, and, and death is sort of undone. So it seemed really an interesting film to think about it being made in 1946, you know, where people are coming back from the war or they're not coming back from the war, and just the whole dilemma around mourning and and how difficult it is and how tempted one is to live among ghosts rather than to accept reality. Dr. Susan Klebanoff is another colleague, co-editor, and psychologist in New York. I was drawn to her case study of Sophie in the book on ghosts. I think this is true because of Susan's own in-betweenness and her own hauntings. Her father was a Chinese immigrant to America, but a Jew. Her patient Sophie experienced the tremendous loss as a young girl of her mother, but her strict father had moved on quickly, leaving Sophie to carry the ghost of her mom. The writers of the books refer to these tasks as errands a reference to Dr. Marisa Pry in his paper on pluperfect errands, or task that we take on from transgenerational trauma. Susan talks about her errands and Sophie's errands and the intersection of each. Can you describe a little bit how your story came to intersect with this patient of yours, Sophie? With Sophie, I so resonated with her story, even though my mother was alive till 97, <laughs> till last year, because of the way in which the unspoken history haunted her, the way in which she had this very authoritarian figure in terms of a father who was trying very much to control what happened emotionally in this family. And when he said they were to move on, they were to move on. My father very much didn't process his, his traumatic childhood, which was filled with loss. He was not only incapable of processing it, he was even incapable of speaking it. I didn't even know about this sister a few years older than him who died until really the last few years because he just did not speak of it. My father has an unusual immigration history. He was born to Russian Jewish parents 
who moved to Harbin, China in Manchuria. And he was one of seven. He was the only one born and raised in China. And he grew up in this Russian Jewish community in China. So it was very much a story of being an outsider. And it was, I think, very challenging for him in terms of what, what culture was he really going to connect to. A very sort of complicated identity. He left China in 1937 as the Japanese were invading, came to the States, and there was no contact for eight years between China and the U.S. And during that time, his mother died. His father had died when he was four. I think that's a different experience than most people have nowadays because there's so many different portals for contact. In several generations in a row of you know, escaping. Being dislodged and being an outsider, I've got not only his mourning, but his mother's mourning, all in process because the goal was to survive. You know, my father came to this country and um, and had his own splintered nuclear family in, in this country. It's a fascinating history. It has lots of gaps. And that's really how this sort of transmission of trauma occurs. The, the trauma narratives are always chopped up. They're always missing parts. They're parts that seem not to make sense. I think a real value in this kind of work that we can do is help patients create an area. And sometimes that's quite purposeful where you're interviewing people and collecting information. Sometimes it's what floats to the surface in your, in your journey. What about your background? How has that affected you? Where do I even start? The oldest child of a mother who was running from something. A broken family, a culture, a place, maybe a person. But I don't even know if it's clear for her. Maybe that's my errand. All this analysis, all this reflection, to clarify. I was doing it at an early age, through poetry or songwriting or making weird movies with my friends. Maybe the ghosts I'm haunted by are the very reason I'm talking to you right now. I don't know how I would feel about burying them. In my case, my father's growing up in China was literally all over our house. It was all over the place. He would introduce himself to people as a Chinaman, then he would laugh. I mean, I've worked with some people who've grown up actually in the South, not far from where you grew up, who were Jewish or half-Jewish. There was something about the not being able to place the person religiously, ethnically, geographically, that I think is very challenging. And then Sophie came in with, in the beginning, she kind of sounds like she was all over the place. It's sort of curious how kids get chosen for this. He chose to tell Sophie certain stories about his experience in the war, which were upsetting experiences. She tried to bring that up once in front of the family, not in a confrontive way, but as a dad told me, and he shut her down. It was very clear that it was her job to, to carry this. There's also something about secrecy and also 
some ways to sort of try to contain certain information, certain stories, certain ethics, to pass them along, but maybe just pass them along to one person. Did you become that person for Sophie? Yeah, I do think that's a big part of our work, um, but in general, but yeah, very much so. To, I mean, I, I explicitly said, I will carry this for you for as long as you need. That's part of bearing witness. It's not only watching and acknowledging, it's holding. It's holding what's unholdable. She was a kid. Did it have a role in you choosing this as a career? I'm sure. I think that that's being more written about nowadays. I remember when I applied to graduate school and got some advice from psychology professors about what to write on my essay. said that under no circumstance should you write, you've always been the person people turn to. Don't write anything like that. You can't be going into this field to write your own personal wrongs or your own narcissistic injuries. But now I think people are talking about it very differently. Back to Adrian Harris. This has been an interest of yours for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, around trauma and yeah. uh, global trauma, kind of, cultural trauma. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it's, for me, connected to about 20, 25 years ago, getting very interested in the work of Sandra Ferenczi, who mm. was the figure in the early decades of psychoanalysis who really insisted that trauma was an important element and that we aren't just dealing with internal fantasies or things we imagined or, or only our own history, but that things happened and they, they took a toll. And what I have found as I've you know, over the years read different people is that I think that the First World War, Freud was still alive and that that first couple of generations of psychoanalysts are trying to figure out what this what is psychoanalysis. And I think any of that group or those groups that lived through both the First and the Second World War, but particularly the First War, they were completely altered by that experience. And they took trauma seriously in, in a way that Freud had a hard time with. I think you could really see it that it's true in the Second World War in terms of things like genocide and the Holocaust, but the disruptions of, of war... I think people who, who live through those make different kinds of theories. I, I, I actually, you know, my, my young adult generation were very involved, a lot of us, in the protest around Vietnam and sort of anti-war. But, so I don't feel that I personally, my father was away at the Second World War. He came back when I was five. So I don't feel that I, I have a lot of direct history, but I have an indirect link to that. But I, I feel very much that that when I read people in my field, I feel the people who really had to think about patients in the aftermath of either the First War or the Second War, they just came up with very different ideas about what people suffered from and what they carried and the ordeal of trauma. So I'm sure that's true. Is there a trend? Is there something constitutional about us that is more sensitive to those ghosts that leads us into this work? 
Well, I I definitely think that, and I've written a little bit about that. I I think um, I I got into it sort of in an odd pathway. I got interested in why it is we're not very good at taking care of ourselves, although we're very good at taking care of other people. And I I did a lot of sort of thinking about early attachment, and um, I think that there are um, if you know. There are different problems of attachment which kids solve in different ways. And there's a researcher, an attachment researcher, Carlin Lyons-Roof, and she she works on one of the categories that is called disorganized attachment, where you have a lot of turmoil in the attachment process and sometimes a lot of um, a parent that's very damaged and, and in difficulty or more than one parent, and kids make different adjustments, but there's a certain pattern that some kids follow that she called tend the friend. And she meant by that that there are kids who become the caretakers of their parents and the caretakers in their families, sometimes very early. And some people have studied this, and they've called it ego precocity, where there's a, the kid has kind of grown up a little too fast or maybe a lot too fast. And I, I think when you look around at our field, and many of us had a history in which we were caretakers of others early. And sometimes it's very overwhelming. I mean, there's a whole spectrum. Sometimes it's just a minor part of one's life. But it, I think that a lot of people who are early sort of premature caretakers that grow up pretty fast. There are a lot of them in our field, and I, I think it, it's, um, it's it, we're good at it. <laughs> we're good at taking care of other people. We're not so good at taking care of ourselves, which is a whole other topic. But And I think so you could say that we're familiar with ghosts often. Yeah. Here's Marjorie again. Contemporary psychoanalysis has gone through a process of having to defend the analyst experience as important to the work. Uh, it doesn't seem like in this book there's much pre-justification for that. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's not even a question anymore. You know, for all the perspectives that I mentioned earlier that we have in that group, different people coming from different perspectives, right? We all agree that our experience is just inevitably part of the treatment. And I think one of Freud's biggest limitations was that, you know, he was brilliant and he came up with these amazing insights. But he himself was never in treatment, right? There weren't he was the first. So there wasn't a way to in treatment. And he didn't have an other with whom to process. But having built on him now for over a century, right? We continue to learn and grow and build and I don't think it's a question for really anyone anymore, at least to my knowledge, that our own histories are going to intersect with those of our patients. There's a huge literature. There's just, I don't think, any question in almost anyone's mind that we, there are two people in the room and we have an impact both ways. Adrian Harris again. I think that's probably true because I think that that at this point in the in our history in psychotherapy and in psychoanalysis, there's a lot of understanding that the analyst 
through their character, through their being, is, you know, contributes an enormous amount to the quality of the experience. I mean, the people who follow Wilfred Bion, the people who, um, who, who use what's called a field theory, and field theory comes from social psychology, the idea that it's the context and the field in which something happens. I think we're much more used to, um, and, and some people have been talking this way for, for decades, other people more recently, that um, there is um, a way in which the experience of the analyst is, um, is in, integral to the, and the character and the idiom and all the, and the history to actually what happens in the room. But the, the, what happens in the room happens in a field that includes at least two people and perhaps more. Hedy Sandberg used to say that she thought that when she was first of all thinking just about the patient, that there were always three generations in the room. When a patient sat in the room, there were three generations. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that, but I would say that's probably true of the analyst as well. That there, you know, that there's a lot of characters uh, right. that, that sort of percolate and circulate in, you know, a, a therapy um, room. And, um, you know, it's, it, takes, it takes a lot of sort of working on yourself. How do you be present but not dominate? How do you not flood or misuse a patient? How do you, I mean, so it's, this, all this way of thinking has made treatment much harder. Mm-hmm. You can't just sit back and think you know everything. You, you have to realize that if something is stuck or there's some problem, it's likely that something's going to have to change in the analyst as well and the patient. And I think it's tempting to get into this work to ignore that stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to kind of suppress our own ghosts as much as possible. That's right. Take care of everybody else. Earlier in the book, you write a chapter on Sabina Spielrein. Can you say a little bit about the intersection of feminism and the intersection of that movement with ghosts. In that chapter, which is about the ghosts of psychoanalysis, we were looking at sort of the fate of certain figures in in psychoanalysis. And I think that Spielrein, who was a very distinguished thinker, she was thinking about women, she was thinking about sexuality, she was very theoretically and uh, clinically sophisticated thinker, but she really gets sort of disappeared, and I think that I think it's a struggle for for women, much less now. But you know, Anna Freud had the imprimatur of her father. I think that the whole question of gender and in the field is has been very complicated. Even taking gender seriously as a topic, and how to think about it, and 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 I think then there are the anxieties that women also bring to ambition and to their own sort of efficacy, their own agency. I think there's, I think that women can be still quite worried about being envied, and is it okay to be to want power or to want to be you know, a presence in the field? So I think there's both a lot of change and a lot of complex resistance to. The change. I mean, I think in a certain curious way, the, the sort of phenomena of Me Too uh, at this particular moment is interesting to think about dilemmas 
of mm-hmm. women around assertiveness and power and the kind of complexity of relations between men and women in, uh, in you know, in regard to the, I mean, the number of these situations where people then have felt abused come after a woman has succeeded at something, you know, stepped into a role in a business or in a profession or in the arts and then become vulnerable. So I think think the whole question of of some of our current struggles around relationships of men and women are still carry the the remnants or the presence of um, much anxiety about who can speak, who can be heard, who has a voice, what kind of a voice can you have. Especially thinking of the Me Too movement, and thinking about the way you've talked about ghosts um, yeah. to think about sexual trauma in that respect, I guess that would be trending to, towards the demonic side of things. I, I think so. I think though, you know, there, there's so much, I, I think that, that I would say this both from my clinical experience and from almost my clinical experience and reading and thinking, I think the question of, sexual abuse, it can be both ghostly and demonic, that Mm. it can be experienced as something in which stirs up, you know, an enigma, what happened, did anything happen, something both precious and terrible and remembered as, well, that wasn't so bad, or yes, it was so bad. I do think that around, around the sort of amnesia around sexual abuse, and, and the enigma of what happened and what did it mean. It's both a very intimate experience and a very traumatic and violent one. And it, it, it can have both extremes. And it, it, in, in some sense, the working out of early trauma often is the discovery of violence and something that was held actually in a very other kind of enigmatic memory, and I think that's been something people are struggling to think about. It seems, reading this work, like something about ghosts being unleashed or ever-present, like right now, (laughs) or in the last few years, it seems like there is a different interaction with those ghosts. I I certainly think that's true. Um, in, In some cases, I would say that if I think back to the early days of feminism, I think mm-hmm. that any moment where you have suddenly a whole political consciousness, it, 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 it includes a tremendous amount of rethinking, reconfiguring, you know, discovering roots, you know, learning about things. Uh, I do think that, and it's hard to know whether it has to do with, what it has to do with, the enormous unrest in the world, the political turmoil in our country, the the post-Trump world, but there's been a tremendous demand, rightly demand, to think about race. And that pulls for everybody into a tremendously complicated situation of how 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 to understand white privilege, how to understand racial violence, how to understand the cost of uh, enslavement to generations of people of color and 
and how is there some you know how can we um, alter it? And I I think the other part of the backdrop politically is that from the time of the 1920s until the Reagan era, we had a very stable distribution of wealth in terms of the relative distance between the poorest and richest. And in the 80s, since the 80s, which is now, you know, 30, 40 years, that statistic blew apart. And so you have such enormous difference in the very wealthy and people in the middle class sinking out of that privileged world into a much more challenging world. Um, you know, two generations mm-hmm. ago, if you were a PhD in art history, you could imagine a professional life as a, you know, in a university, and now there are no jobs, and there's, no, you know, there's, right. there's a, you, you have a certain, certain places, certain professions, essentially falling out of an elite place into a much more compromised one. So I think all of those may, you know, open us to political tensions that are, you know, we're only just starting to understand, you know, what's the impact of an environmental crisis on the kind of social turmoil that we're, I think, often negotiating. So I, I think it does feel like a really a good time to have done that book on ghosts and demons, those books on ghosts and demons, but I think we are in a very um, troubling period of of disturbance. We're not a culture that resolves well. We don't mourn well. We don't grieve well. And and not processing, having a hard time with accepting limits, accepting law. Can I ask you personally, it seems like the timing of this group, uh, you were you were with this group as you were losing your husband. What happened in the group, we started in, uh, and, and I think we were all in quite, there, there wasn't a particular horizon of loss either in my life or in, in anybody. It was just sort of a, we, we were feeling upbeat. And mm. within the first two years of the group, there were several deaths. There have been these, you know, very powerful losses and changes and positive things. So, you know, it's had, but it's definitely been marked by things that, some things that have happened to people in their practice, some things that have happened to people individually in their lives around loss and death and illness. It feels like an exploration. Yeah. Yeah, it was good for me to work on it. It was helpful to me. It, um, Writing is for me an important transformative process. Mm. And such a powerful intersection of, you know, you mentioned that the two of you had had this conversation, but also his interests lining up with with yours, and then very eerie. But um, and the, the the book he was working on, and the book the the chapter he was one of the things that he talked about was a documentary. A chapter he's writing about a documentary about World War II um, veterans who had had breakdowns because of PTSD, essentially, although I didn't have that language for it. And I've gone on to do some work on that um, documentary and to write about it and feel engaged in a, in a process with all that work, which is good mm-hmm. for me. Was the question of 
Or how does a ghost become an answer, Esther, ever answered? Well, the the answer, but it's very hard, is that Mm -hmm. the ghost has to be buried. That when the ghost can be put to rest, can be interred in some way, the ghost can begin to become an ancestor. That is not somebody you're haunted by, but somebody that you you have a relationship to, a relationship of uh, memory. And but there's something different about but about it's not that every buried creature has been actually buried. You could be we're talking about buried in the psychological sense. Mm. And it's and, and it's, a, it's a little tricky to talk about. What does that mean? What is the difference between mourning and melancholy? And Freud thought it was very clear, and the, just you very quickly got through melancholy and got to the mourning, but I think what we all understand much more now is that actually melancholy can be an enormously compelling, lifelong project, and that mourning in which you really accept loss and difference and limits what you can do for someone and with someone and just being able to to live with the reality of loss. That, I think, is curious, but it, it has such a dire... <laughs> the idea of mourning is so dire, but it's hard. And it's, but, but there is also a certain kind of freedom to not be haunted. You don't have the task of repairing something that's irreparable because it's gone. Dr. Harris, thanks so much. Thanks so much for talking. Thanks a lot. Our thanks to Drs. Adrian Harris, Marjorie Kalb, and Susan Klebanoff. The companionate books are Ghosts in the Consulting Room and Demons in the Consulting Room, respectively. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely. Mason composed our music. This episode was edited by myself and Chris Keen. If you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash between us. Or if you want to follow us on social media, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for sticking with us into our third season. Keep telling people about us and sharing episodes. And until next time, take care.